Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the network, and each week we search for new and interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week I'm very pleased to say we will be talking to Pasan Parthasarathi about his book, uh, Why Europe Grew Rich and Asia Did Not, Global Economic Divergence, uh, 1600 to 1850. Uh, I have read a lot of books that try to explain why Europe grew rich and Asia did not. I love the title of this book. It's completely telegraphic. That's one of its great virtues. The whole book is telegraphic. But I, I, I confess, after reading all these books, I do not know. I do not know. But I think after um, reading uh, uh, Pasanen's book, I, I have a better idea of, of why uh, Europe grew rich and Asia did not. This is obviously an extraordinarily big question and touchy in many ways. And, and I think that uh, Pasanen does a very good job of... of uh, of explaining why uh, these two areas of the world, really more than two areas of the world, uh, ended up in different states. And he does so in a very neutral, and I think, uh, I don't know if I should say this word or not, scientific. Can I say that, Pasan? Scientific fashion? Is that okay? <laughs> sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because he has a thesis. Lordy, lordy, he has a thesis, and the thesis is either wrong or right, and he musters evidence uh, to, to show that the thesis is right. And that's it's a very great virtue of this book, too. So, Prasanna, um, thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Marshall. All right. So, uh, could you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm from India, as many of our listeners can probably deduce from my name. Uh, but I came to the United States as a child. Uh, my father worked at the World Bank. So we, my family moved to Washington, D.C., and I spent a lot of summers in India and kind of going back and forth. One of the stark differences in income and wealth were always something that I kind of puzzled over. Um, and as a, as a uh, college student, I, I was an undergraduate at Williams College. I was actually starting to study chemistry. But... Um, I, as a sophomore, I spent a semester taking a class on the uh, writings of Karl Marx, and that kind of changed my direction, and I majored in economics. And then I ended up in a PhD program in economics at Harvard, where I started thinking about these questions a little more intensively. And um, so my training is actually in economics, which may... Uh, account for the description of my book as scientific. So I think I... <laughs> I meant I, that in a totally good way. I <laughs> no, no, I know. But I think I, I have a, a, a pretty kind of strong training in, in analytic, in strong analytic training, we could call it. Um, so it's a, during, during when I was doing my PhD, I was a student of David Landis's. And um, I... 
I picked a, a thesis topic. So my area of research was in economic history. So I picked a thesis topic on 18th century South India, which is the region of India that I'm from. And it was a study of, of the textile industry and weavers and merchants. And I picked this topic really because I thought it could shed light on two questions that I was interested in most. One was, what was the impact of the rise of British rule in India? Um, and the second was, I thought that a study of textile manufacturing in the region of India would help me shed light on this problem of why Europe grew rich and Asia did not. So that's how I that's when I started thinking about these questions, but in the thesis itself, I really focused on just the nature of colonialism and its impact and left the second question for later, which I picked up about 10, 12 years ago, uh, doing the research and writing and it culminated in this book. Mm-hmm. You, uh, I like two things that you said. One is the uh, introduction to the topic via Marx. I, I, this, mm-hmm. this happened to me too. Mm-hmm. I, I, did, I, did, I, had, I was going to be a doctor, and then I kind of read Marx, and I was like, you know, this is some really interesting questions this guy asks. <laughs> and, oh, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Yeah. It's the power of that man's mind. Yeah, no, incredible. He, he asked all the right questions. Yeah. I don't know if his answers were right, but he asked all the right questions. And then, <laughs> and, and then, you, and then you mentioned David Landis. Uh, I used to actually teach with David Landis, and you, I think that uh, our uh, listeners would be interested to know that David Landis wrote perhaps the most famous of these books. That yes. tries to describe why Europe and not other places. And I think it's called Prometheus Unbound. Is that right? Is that right? Unbound um, Prometheus. That's what it's called. Yeah, Unbound Prometheus. Is one of them. Is one of them. And then later he, he wrote a more popular book that explicitly addressed uh, glo- global questions, um, the wealth and poverty of nations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was right. published in the late 1990s. Yeah. So, so he, he really is the godfather of, of many of these books. And, and so it's interesting that you studied with him. Yes. And I can remember certain interactions with David Landis um, while I was teaching there uh, at Harvard, especially with the undergraduates who came there. Uh, you know, this was a long time ago, and they came there of a more or less socialist bent. Mm-hmm. David Landis would not have any of it. <laughs> was, so was, did you teach? Was this in this historical this, study? Yeah, that's right. It was in social studies. It was in social okay. studies. Yeah, I taught with him there, and uh, he would be brought in to give lectures about yeah. you know because we would read Weber and Marx and these other things, and he would come and give lectures about the history of capitalism. And mm-hmm. uh, his history of capitalism is very different than Marx's, uh, and. Uh, but that many of the – and we read Marx too, of course uh, – many of the students there, um, and I would say this is true of me as an early undergraduate, uh, were rather critical of capitalism as such and didn't really like what Landis had to say about it. And, um, and so it was a very interesting experience for me. Uh, you know, I'm not taking sides here. I just remember Landis as being kind of a, an oversized character. You know, he's, oh, a, yeah. he's, a, he's a big personality. He's a big personality, and he, he's a really major historian. Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Of absolutely. the um, – the post-war U.S. Yeah, absolutely. In so, the post-war U.S. Yeah, so, so, so let, let me. I, you kind of asked the uh, answered the question, but let me ask it in more detail. Uh, wh- wh- why did you write this book? I mean, this is a um, this is the kind of book that one hesitates to write, particularly a young scholar. Uh, it's a big book, and uh, sorry, I'm just sort of interested in in why you took up the the task. Well, as I said before, I, I think being a uh, being from India and spending a lot of time both in the U.S. and in India, it's the kind of question that looms large in one's thinking. But then um, also focusing in South Asian history, 
Um, and since the late 70s, uh, there's been a growing body of research on 17th and 18th century South Asia that, that has been drawing parallels in the nature of political economic uh, development between different regions in South Asia and those that seem thought to be exceptional in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, so things like growing commercial activity, growing money use, um, ra- the emergence of rationality that was associated with um, greater sophistication of, of commercial activity, um, kind of state centralization, proto-bureaucratization, a number of things that were seen as uniquely European while India was kind of caught in either kind of oriental despotism or a kind of static situation or chaotic decline. Um, all of these these previous dichotomies of Europe and India um, really didn't hold any water. So if all of these ways in which Europe thought to, was thought to be different was no longer tenable, then how can we explain this divergence? Mm-hmm. Because this, these exceptional developments in Europe were thought to be the reason for, say, European industrialization and mm-hmm. so on. So it really was a coming together of these two um, uh, points. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of my work... On comparative, these comparative questions actually began right after I finished my PhD, which um, so I finished in 1992. Um, and I thought, let me see if I can get a, a, a quick publication from my research on weavers in South India. And um, so I, I thought, uh, South Asia in the 17th and 18th centuries was a huge exporting region, an exporter of, of manufactured goods, the most important being cotton textiles. So um, since the late 17th century, the received wisdom on why these cotton textiles from India were so competitive in markets around the world, uh, its competitiveness was attributed to the, the cheapness of Indian labor. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things that I found in my dissertation is that so if you look at weavers in South India in the 18th in the 18th century, and they were in an incredibly strong bargaining position, and, and could, received very favorable contracts from merchants to whom they supplied cloth and so on. So this argument about the cheapness of Indian labor didn't hold any water. I thought so. I I did a, a very rough comparison of. Um, Kind of the weekly earnings of weavers, also spinners, and laborers in agriculture in, in the mid 18th century, comparing South India with Britain. And Britain at the time was considered to have the highest uh, wages in, in Europe. And what I found was that actually the um, in, in kind of very in real terms, so converting these weekly money earnings into the quantity of grain that could be purchased. What I found was that uh, these real living standards, very roughly calculated, were comparable between Britain and South India, which really runs counter to a long-standing received wisdom. So this I published in 1998, and then this kind of sparked 
my further research on these questions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I see. Well, one of the things I really like about the book, and I called it scientific, is that it's a good example of the way that science is supposed to work. Uh, we had a hypothesis about Europe and Asia. The part of it that uh, concerned Asia did not rest on firm empirical foundations. Uh, due to a lot of reasons, uh, American academia started to produce people that studied South Asia intensively and basically with Western methods. And what mm -hmm. we discovered was what we knew about South Asia was wrong. So mm -hmm. we had to go back to the hypothesis and change it. Yeah. I mean, that's just the way it's supposed to work, right? <laughs> well, in, in, in theory, yeah. in, in the best of all worlds, yeah, I mean, history is a kind of, it's, it's a kind of theoretical discipline that has, is tempered by empirical material as well. Yeah, I suppose that's true. And, but yeah. but and evidence, is, evidence is often very hard to uh, interpret as well. Yeah, no, that's absolutely so, true. That's so true. There are lots but, of debates about how to interpret certain pieces of evidence. Right. But I think on, on the whole, some of these um, Previous assumptions about European difference just don't hold so much water. Yeah, anymore. yeah. I mean, I, and I think that I've, you know, obviously it's interesting. It'd be, I'd be interested to see how your book is received and other books like this that say something kind of similar uh, by the people that wrote these earlier books. I mean, uh, my impression is that they're sort of fair-minded people, and they'll say, "Well, we didn't know that, so I didn't mm -hmm. know that, so I was wrong, and he's right." And you know, that that is. You know, and kudos to those people for saying that, because that yeah. exactly is the way it's supposed to work. Um, yeah. Yeah, so good. So let's actually talk about the, uh, the thesis of the book, and let's set the stage a little bit. Uh, Europe in the 18th century and uh, India, which is your primary comparison in the 18th century. And you, I should say, focus on a couple of particular areas, if I recall correctly. One is Britain, and then in the Indian case, you focus on uh, Gujarat, which is in the west, and then Bengal, which is in the east, is that right? I'm sorry. Yes. Again, I'm one of those people that doesn't know anything about India. So I'm, yeah. wrong, I'm wrong about everything. About <laughs> well, no, you've, I mean, you've been right so far about okay. all things so, on India. Right, so these, so are, these are your comparisons, yeah. I focus on a little bit on Gujarat. I mean, in, in the 18th century, there were, there were um, half a dozen or so really highly commercialized uh, big exporting regions in in India. So Gujarat in the West was one of them. Uh, but there's been less research done on Gujarat in the 17th and 18th century. Um, another one was in the East, Bengal, and there's been quite a lot done on Bengal. So I, I draw on a lot, quite a bit of evidence from Bengal in my book, and also my own area, which is South India, Southeastern India in the 18th century. So it's um, so I try to focus on Bengal and South India as much as possible, but for some pieces of evidence were not available for those two regions, so sometimes I go into northern India, into, into Gujarat, for some kinds of comparisons that I'm interested in making in the book. Mm -hmm. and, the, and the industry that you focus on particularly is one that was very important in the 18th century, we know that, and that is uh, the textile industry, and particularly uh, cotton, the making of cotton thread, and then its production into, into cloth of various kinds, right? Yeah, and, Textiles were the most important manufactured good um, in the world until sometime in the 19th century, maybe even the 20th century. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're a manufactured yeah. good. They're pretty easy to transport. They're universally necessary. Yeah. And cotton is so much better than anything else. Yeah. And of those, I mean, in, in global trade, <laughs> yeah. uh, cotton was the most important. And going back quite a long time. Yeah. So 
and until the un, until the 19th century, the main source of cotton textiles to this to the global economy was India. Uh-huh, that's right. So, so we're talking about a a situation before the 19th century in which um, these cotton manufacturing regions in India were really major centers in this global economic order. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it really, one of the things the book tries to do is really shift our attention from thinking about a global economy in the 18th century or even in the 17th century as something that's really centered in Europe or Northwestern Europe mm-hmm. and argues um, for the importance of um, some these Indian regions in world trade. Mm-hmm. So let's come right to the thesis of the book. And it, as I say, it's, it's very, uh, it's very distinct. It's very telegraphic. Can you, you state it and it concerns this just to lead you a little bit. Uh, it concerns the, the problem that uh, British uh, tradesmen and I guess manufacturers in textiles faced mm-hmm. when they, when they saw the import of Indian cotton. Yes. So go ahead and talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, let me take a step back um, from from the British textile manufacturers to uh, to thinking about how we even conceptualize the problem, because I think that's an important intervention that I make with the book, um, which is that um, previous writings on on the problem of economic divergence have tried to identify something that may some way in which Europe or Europeans were different from Chinese or Indians or um, West Asians and then divergence is attributed to that difference so Europeans may maybe they were more they had a kind of rationality that Europeans and Chinese did not have or they had capitalism or they had a kind of scientific culture so this is how the problem has been, um, or the answers to this question have been structured until now. And what I argue is that this is an anachronistic way to structure the problem because it, it's, we can only structure the problem after the fact, once we already know the outcome. But no one in the 17th and 18th centuries was operating or making choices with this outcome in mind. Mm-hmm. So I argue that to not be anachronistic, we need to, to, so to really kind of situate ourselves in the 17th and 18th century world. Um, we need to first see that the, the, the paths of economic change were plural or multiple, that there were many paths that could be taken. And I argue that we need to see these different paths that were taken across Europe and Asia as really responses to whatever social, political, economic pressures were being felt in those different regions. And if these pressures were systematically different, then it's not surprising that different paths of economic development emerged across this great area of Europe and Asia. Mm -hmm. Um, So what the book argues is that um, Europe was subject to two pressures that were not found in uh, any region of India in the 18th century. And the first of these was uh, pressure from global competitive pressures from Indian uh, textile manufacturers. As I said uh, a few minutes ago, these regions in India really dominated the, the global trade in cotton textiles, the most important manufactured good. Um, one sign of this 
of this dominance, besides the fact that so many regions of the world, from Japan, Southeast Asia, the Ottoman Empire, East Africa, West Africa, Europe, and the Americas, all of these regions, now growing evidence is showing we're consuming larger and larger quantities of Indian cotton goods, or and if cotton, Indian cotton goods were not available, locally made cotton goods. So cotton underwent the kind of consumption revolution in the, in, in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, and another sign of India's dominance in this world economy or importance in this world economy is that um, I estimate in, in the book that about a quarter of the silver that was being was, was infused into the global economy between 1600 and 1800, much of this from the Americas, but also some from Japan, that about a quarter of the silver ended up in India, mm-hmm. which was, then was coined and it fueled this great commercial revolution. Um, so I, European manufacturers, as well as manufacturers in some other places, including Southeast Asia, the Ottoman Empire, they saw all of these Indian textiles being consumed both locally as well as in other markets around the world, and they started to uh, try to imitate these Indian cotton textiles. Um, And what what I argue in the book is that mechanization of spinning in the late 18th century, which is one of the key breakthroughs in textile manufacturing, um, and closely one of the central elements of the British Industrial Revolution, really emerged out of an attempt to manufacture cotton cloth that could both meet kind of the specifications set by Indian textile manufacturers, the kind of quality cloth that they could manufacture um, and that could compete with Indian goods in markets around the world. Mm -hmm. So it was that pressure that led to this Western European response. I mean, it first really emerges in Britain, but you have textile manufacturers in other parts of Europe as well. And there's growing evidence for for this from France, trying to figure out how they can outcompete Indian goods and Indian textile workers. Um, so this is a pressure that was not felt in India, because they were dominant in this textile global textile trade. So that was the first of these two pressures. Uh, that led to this uh, European response that then put Europe on the on a path of greater and greater production using machinery. Um, the second pressure that the book takes up, I mean, cotton is extremely important in my mind, I mean, but the 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 mechanization of spinning and then some subsequent innovations in textile manufacturing. I I think in global terms, it's a very important part of this divergence between Europe and Asia because the center of the world's textile manufacturing from the late 18th century shifted out of South Asia or India into Western Europe. Mm -hmm. So from the early 19th century, Britain really becomes the major supplier to the world of cotton textiles. Mm-hmm. So this is a dramatic transformation of global economic relations, a, a, a different path of development, 
But that alone, um, I argue in the book, would have produced a rather I mean, an important economic transformation in Europe, but cannot explain fully in some of the developments before the mid-19th century. The, and to understand some of these other developments that, have, that were centered around energy, the increasing use of coal, which um, then made possible once coal started to be put to work in smelting iron, and once the steam engine started to be perfected, um, a new kind of energy economy emerges, which I think is critical to understanding this, the European path. And that, I argue, using my framework of differential pressures, um, what you have in, in, especially in Britain very early, is tremendous shortages of wood which lead to experimentation with coal that lasts for several hundred years, culminating in the 18th century with important technological breakthroughs. But if you look at the advanced regions of India, Bengal or South India, or even the heartland of Northern India, the heartland of the Mughal Empire in the 17th century, what you find is abundant forested areas. Mm -hmm. So there isn't the same kind of ecological pressure that in Britain gives rise to the search for new kinds of sub energy substitutes that produces this tremendous coal revolution. In India, you have abundant forested areas well into the 19th and even 20th century. Mm -hmm. So the context is really different. But in Britain, with this experimentation in coal, which begins in the medieval period, uh, it slowly accelerates. Um, and by the 18th century, it's the, the increasing use of coal is closely linked to advances in the steam engine because of the poor efficiency of steam engines. The one place where it can, they can be used very effectively is at mine heads, where you have plentiful, and especially coal mines, where you have plentiful supplies of coal. And so the development of the steam engine is closely linked to coal, the exploitation of coal. And then coal is um, used for the smelting of iron. So iron prices suddenly plummet. So you, by the early 19th century, so by the 1830s, 1840s, this new energy economy really starts to build up steam in Britain, but closely linked to a long-standing ecological um, crisis in Britain is the argument of the book that had no counterpart in India. Mm -hmm. I see. So that's the larger kind of argument. And the third leg of this argument, which I think is really, really important, um, and is the, the centrality of state policy. And I think we need to see the British state in the 17th and 18th centuries as really a mercantilist state. Um, which is you, uh, trying to build up the economy as a way to build up state power. So the state plays a very important role, um, sometimes unintentionally, uh, and other times quite deliberately, in um, building up capacity in both uh, textile manufacturing as well as in the exploitation of coal. So in the case of textile manufacturing, um, Indian cottons um, 
or the import of Indian cottons into Britain starts to be restricted from about 1700. Um, and the kinds of restrictions um, that are placed on Indian cottons lead to new kinds of cotton textile activity in Britain. And so it's really interesting. You can see, you can track the development of the cotton industry in 18th century Britain very closely to, uh, to state policies from 1700 on. Um, so British textile manufacturers are give, are have a, a, a protected market in which they really experiment with cotton manufacturing and trying to supply this growing local demand for cotton goods. And it takes 70 odd years to really finally be able to outcompete India. So this is not a, a, a this is not an immediate process. So an economic change is often a very slow and long term process. And with coal, I argue in the book that the British state was extremely interested in in uh encouraging and protecting coal, um, which it, it did in a number of ways. Coal was really important for maintaining the peace of London the the coal trade from Newcastle, so the British state played an important role in protecting and preserving that trade. The British state uh, helped or to encourage the replacement of charcoal with coal by placing really high tariffs on imports of iron in the 18th century, tariffs that grew, grew steadily over the course of the 18th century. So we're really trying to encourage local iron manufacturing for military purposes um, and to reduce dependence on Swedish and Russian iron, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think economic history, for the most part, um, is Smithian in its focus, we could say, inspired by the work of Adam Smith and really wants to privilege the market. But I think this, the importance of the state needs to really be brought back in mm-hmm. to understand economic change. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. So this seems to be, and to put it kind of simply, this seems to be a case, a kind of classical case in the economic sense of market entry. That is, there were British entrepreneurs or textile manufacturers who saw an opportunity to outcompete uh, really people who were their brethren because the British were importing these Indian textiles and through innovations of various sorts, they found a way to provide the same good uh, at a lower price. And as you say, with the help of the state and tariffs and things like this, is that a correct characterization or is that, is that anachronistic? I think, I, no, I, I think that is a correct characterization. And I, one of the things that the book argues is that the state is really important, but that doesn't mean that, uh, that entrepreneurial activity is not important. And if you look at in Britain in the 18th century, and that of the ingenuity of entrepreneurs and, and manufacturers and coal miners is, is really extraordinary. Mm-hmm. So, but it, I think one needs to see this, the state as providing a very important context mm-hmm. for this entrepreneurial activity to flourish. Certainly, certainly. So let, let's actually talk a little bit about the three legs of this argument. I'm going to talk about the first one, uh, and, that, and that has to do with um, weaving technologies, really. Um, uh, innovation is expensive, 
<laughs> it's really hard to buy. <laughs> I think there are a lot of people in Silicon Valley trying to buy it right now. It's not, yeah. I don't think you can just buy it. Uh, so, so I see these, um, these British textile manufacturers and there they are confronted with these Indian textiles that are very high quality and people seem to love them. And they say, well, we have to do better than this. Why didn't they just do what the Indians did? I mean, how did the Indians produce it? And why didn't the British just say, well, you know, we have people over there, we have factors. And so we'll just kind of copy the way that they do it. And then we'll produce the same thing. Well, they did do that um, in, for certain things. I mean, uh, they tried to get a lot of information about how Indians um, dyed cotton cloth, for example, and how they – a lot of this cotton cloth um, was either uh, printed with designs or painted. That was one of the things that made them so appealing. And uh, there were attempts to understand the processes by which Indians um, made these colors fast on the cloth. It's so it's so funny. I have to interrupt because I was just dropping my daughter off at her day or at her 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 school, and uh-huh. they have a whole set of these sort of printed cotton cloths. They're just completely iconic, and everybody recognizes them as Indian even today. I'm sure yeah. they're made in China, but but they are. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but they so are. everybody it's, recognizes it's, these. Things, yeah, and know, printed cotton. I mean, which is so common today. I mean, I'm sitting here wearing a printed cotton shirt. It's not yeah, Indian, right. yeah. but it's it's it has its origins in this Indian yeah. trade in yeah. the 17th century, very starting tra- in the 17th century. Very attractive century. stuff. Very attractive. So, uh, so you said they, they they did actually ape these techniques, but why not the whole production process? I guess that's what I mean. I mean, why didn't they just say, you know, in the way that Ch- I guess Chinese manufacturers do, um, and I know Russian manufacturers did, just just borrow the whole factory, we'll bring it over here, and we'll just produce it here. You know. The main problem that they face, I mean, they did at, at certain points start to bring Indian weavers to Britain. There were experiments in France bringing over Indian weavers. And they didn't really go anywhere. Um, the, the major problem in the 18th century that these European textile manufacturers faced was really spinning yarn that was strong enough to be stretched on the loom as the warp. Hmm. So those were the... Mm-hmm. Um, and... They they did try to figure out they they made inquiries about how Indians spun the yarn and so on, but it it never really went anywhere. And I'm not I can't answer this question mm-hmm. and, and why it is that this, um, European spinners found it so difficult to to spin this cotton strong enough to be to be used in the loom. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there were lots of inquiries i mean so studies and of what indian how indians did it but it it, it couldn't be it wasn't able to, to be translated into the european context mm-hmm. and this is a particularly unusual thing i remember in the 19 does anybody remember the 1980s anymore when japan was going to dominate the world do you remember yeah that? yeah do you remember that <laughs> um, yeah now it's china is going to dominate the world i don't we're very bad yeah, at yeah. picking the country of the future very yeah, bad. and yeah. I mean, I remember with the Japan stuff, there was all this talk about, oh, just-in-time manufacturing. Yeah, right, and, we're going to do it just like they do it. <laughs> yeah. And it, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I don't think that it's, it's, you can't, it's not so easy just to kind of take something from one place and just pop it down somewhere no, else. No, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's quite difficult. Yeah, I think the whole history of the Soviet Union demonstrates that. Uh, yeah. And I say that as a Russian historian. So, um, so anyway, they couldn't, they could not uh, reproduce the way in which uh, these cotton textiles were produced in India. So then you say they sought alternatives. And mm-hmm. but, the, but the alternatives they sought are kind of unusual mechanical production of these things. Where did they get the idea to produce mechanical looms? Well, it, it starts really with spinning. Yeah. Um, 
And it, it, it's, it was really the application of um, kind of roller processes. So if you have a roller turning, that somehow if we can apply um, pressure, we can draw out a yarn. Yeah. So, uh, and some of this, this roller technology was, was even applied to cloth printing in the 18th century. And you can see also the application of techniques used in spinning wool yarn mm -hmm. into cotton in, the, in Britain in the 18th century. So things like the, using uh, cards, so kind of rough brushes yeah. to um, put the fibers, wool fibers parallel to prepare them for spinning starts to be applied to cotton spinning or to prepare cotton, raw cotton for spinning, which is something that's not done in India at all. Mm -hmm. So it's a kind of use, uses of different kinds of techniques that were in existence in Britain and applying them to the task of cotton. Mm -hmm. So here we have kind of a, a, a classic example of uh, technology transfer and tinkering. Exactly. This, this, was, this sort of thing was in their environment. They knew about it in another context, and they thought it might be able to be adapted to the production of cotton thread. Exactly. Yeah, and it turned out that they could produce it actually uh, quite inexpensively compared to cotton thread imported from India. Exactly. Yeah, and then we come to the more complicated thing, which is actually the mechanical loom. Um, yeah. And, the, and these things are so complicated, I don't even understand them. I, they really are uh, pretty bizarrely complicated. Yeah, well, it starts just with the fly shuttle. Yeah. So with something that instead of having to um, have two people, especially in very broad cloth, that throw the shuttle back and forth to send warp yarns back and forth, being able to hit something on the side that can uh, send the shuttle back and forth. Mm -hmm. So that's really where it begins. And then it... Um, then subsequently, in the late 18th, early 19th century, that it's that becomes mechanized. Yeah, and then, and then it becomes mechanically powered, and then we come yeah. to the story of, of wood and coal. So originally, I, I don't know what originally means in history, but uh, originally were these things mechanically powered by wood-fired steam engines, or how were they powered? Were they powered by water? Well, a, a lot of the early power in... in um, say in, in Lancashire, was water power. Mm -hmm. And even, in, say, in the U.S. as well, in textile manufacturing. And in, in the U.S., water power becomes really the staple source of power for, and remains that for a long, longer time than in Britain. Yeah, and uh, I have to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but you went to Williams. So, I mean, I'm in Northampton right now. And, mm -hmm. and this area of New England... Uh, w w how, the, how this economy works now, I don't know. <laughs> I don't really understand what anybody does here, but um, there are mills everywhere. There are yeah. mills, water mills everywhere. So yeah. this, was, this was really how it, it, it was done in the 18th century, was with water mills. Yeah, yeah. and even into the 19th century in New England. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, but in Britain, you have some uh, use of steam power in the early 19th century, but it, in, in, in textile manufacturing in Lancashire, but it really takes off from the, the 1840s for a variety of reasons. Um, some of it having to do with um, the, in, once the 10-hour uh, the day is enacted, then mill owners 
they need to speed up their machines. Mm-hmm. And the way that they do can do that is with installing steam power mm-hmm. as opposed to uh, water power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's... It, one of the arguments of the book is that it's really steam power becomes um, really central to cotton manufacturing um, quite late in the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, we can kind of distinguish between innovations in cotton and the energy revolution. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how does coal uh, begin to be used in this context? And why, again, you say that uh, England was deforested. Mm-hmm. And I can, people who've been to England will know that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, it's interesting about this part of New England. Uh, most people don't, I don't know if most people don't realize this or not, but the area around Williams College, for example, and certainly Northampton in the 18th century would have been completely barren because it was mm-hmm. all cropped. So this, there were no forests here. They'd cut them all down. Yeah. And now so it's, you totally, have, it's all forest. <laughs> so you have a tremendous revival yeah, exactly. of forest yeah. in the 19th century right. cut everything. in New England. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so England is deforested. They need to turn to another, uh, another uh, fuel source. How did they come upon coal? Well, coal is, is, is really abundant, found in lots of parts of, of England and Wales and even in Scotland. Um, it's... Um, in, it's in some places found pretty close to the surface. So when you find this stuff I mean, I, at some quite early point, I don't know exactly when, and you have people in, in, in the British Isles kind of experimenting with yeah. coal. I kind of, and, I kind of my, my guess would be, you know, they burnt peat a lot. I know I lived in Ireland for a while. They still um, burn it. And uh, yep. peat is uh, basically something that's about to become coal. At least that's, yeah. my, that's my impression. Yeah, yeah. So it is a fossil fuel, but it's yeah, not, right, yeah. has, has not yeah. reached that stage right, yet. So right. it's, I mean, less, it contains less energy. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of coal use, even into the into the 19th century, was for for domestic purposes. Yeah. yeah. So for domestic uh, for heating homes and for cooking. Yeah. So that was really a very important, a big market, and this is where you could do a lot of innovation. Right. A lot, a lot of houses in New England have coal chutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there you go. And then, so gradually, coal starts to be experimented with for uh, manufacturing processes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Of, of various kinds. So glass making and brewing beer, where you need to heat up water. So it's just, it was a, a long process of kind of trial and error, mm-hmm. and. A lot of this knowledge was really um, held in the hands of hands and minds of the people who worked with the coal. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the interesting things in, in that the, about 18th century Europe is that in Britain itself, which is where in Europe you had the most knowledge of coal, um, there were very few works written about coal. Whereas in Germany, where there's much less knowledge about coal, you have a, many more publications about coal. So, and this is a sign that the Germans are trying to understand how to use this coal and trying to propagate this knowledge. Whereas in Britain, it was kind of developed organically through the coal workers themselves. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I th- the, the, well, once these techniques spread in the textile industry and once coal fired steam engines in this case, or cold fired, uh, basically something with cold fired production, um, that, that would include things like, um, heating up water and things like this, uh, for the production of beer, let's say, um, once that is initiated, then other entrepreneurs in the English context begin to see 
that it, it is a very economical way to do things, and they uh, basically adopt these technologies? Is that the argument? Well, these these technologies do diffuse, mm-hmm. uh, and more people start experimenting with coal in different new kinds of processes, and come up with new innovations, and I mean, ultimately culminating really with the substitution of, of coal or coke for charcoal mm-hmm. in iron smelting, which mm-hmm. is a, a really major breakthrough. Right, exactly. So let's um let's look at the other side of the equation. So the uh, the Indians. I don't really like this phrase because I think one thing people don't understand is this. When we talk about a place like Gujarat or a place like Bengal, th- these are enormous places. Mm-hmm. They're just enormous. They're not, and so it's it's. Uh, it would be like talking about y- Europe and then one part of it England, India, yeah. one part of it Gujarat. It's it's really mm-hmm. a big place. So uh, th- they were really the first to understand how to produce these textiles uh, efficiently enough to export them into the British market, and the British sort of cooked their own goose in that way because they started this export industry. Um, again, entrepreneurship. Uh, so. D- did the Indian manufacturers of these things, obviously they sensed that their, um, their export industry was collapsing. Did they, did they, why didn't they attempt to borrow what the English had used in order to make their goods yet more inexpensive and then re-export them? Yeah. Well, I mean, they do start doing it from the 1850s and in Bombay, uh, which is one of the, the the big centers of cotton manufacturing in uh, the new mill framework. Bombay uh, begins in the 1850s. Um, but earlier than that, before that, um, I, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a slow process of change. I mean, it's not something that happens all of a sudden. And you have, I mean, you had multiple markets that were uh, the Indian manufacturers and merchants were trading and sending goods. Um, so I think as sort of some of these markets in the Atlantic world started to evaporate, then Indian manufacturers started sending to some other markets say in, in East Africa or in the Middle East. As Middle East markets begin to evaporate, and you still have the vast domestic market. And I think. So it wasn't a kind of a sudden, a sudden process of the elimination of these markets, and so it took place over several decades. Uh, I think the other important piece of it is that one of the things that the book argues is that one of the sources of, of, of important sources of dynamism in the 18th century. Uh, South Asian context is is, re- is really the state, mm-hmm. and um, in 18th century South Asia, you have a lot of regional state building going on. So you have quite a bit of innovation in things like armaments manufacturing and metallurgy, and and states also beginning to realize that and they need to try to build up local manufacturing capacity in order to. Uh, expand their revenue base and be able to compete politically and militarily. And I think the the elimination of the state or the Indian state system, we could say, um, and the establishment of British colonial rule. I mean, the British colonial state was not interested in Indians, kind of Indian manufacturers forging a response to this new global condition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I mean, and they were explicitly 
trying to like uh, expand markets for Indian for British made goods in India itself. Mm-hmm. So I think it's it's the it's the gradualness of the shift combined with this uh, new political context. Mm-hmm. Because I think I mean to really respond to a lot of seismic shifts in the global economy, I think you need to have um, the state has to play an important role. And you see the state in places like France and Belgium really playing a very important role in trying to respond to this new kind of manufacturing uh, and industrial capacity that emerges in Britain. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I, I, we've, we're running out of time, but there are a couple of questions I want to, uh, I want to ask you, uh, and it's really about things that you haven't said Mm-hmm. that are often said in this context. And you kind of touched on one of them, and that is there, there are some people that would argue that imperialism had a lot to do with the fa- like failure. Is that the right word? I don't know. Uh, the failure of these other areas, non-European areas of the world, to respond industrially to the European threat. But you, in your book, that doesn't really play a very great role. Well, it, it does at the end. I think, I think imperialism is a very important dimension, um, especially in the Indian case, um, where in the 18th century you have a, a, a really sophisticated uh, economic order and a sophisticated knowledge order, is what I argue in the book, mm-hmm. um, in terms of artisanal skill and knowledge and so on. And this really gets um, slowly, it gets uh, dismantled in the 19th century mm-hmm. as India opened up as a market for British exports. Um, there's less need for local armaments manufacturing because this new British Indian army is supplied from uh, with weapons from manufactured in Britain. So metallurgical skills begin to decline and disappear. So there's a process of de-skilling that in 19th century India, which I think is intimately connected mm-hmm. to uh, its status as a colony. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I certainly understand that. I'm, I'm thinking of the parallel case being, you mentioned that the British were promoting manufacturers in their colonies uh, in the 18th century. They certainly did that in the New World as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that because I have just renovated an 18th century house, and I noticed that a lot of the finished goods were from England. Because, oh, okay. and, I, and I read about this, and that's because the English mandated that finished goods had to be brought from England. They couldn't be yeah. manufactured in the colonies. Well, no. no wonder they revolted. Um, can't make a doorknob or a latch. Um, mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah. So this so, is, I mean, this is yeah, the, they, they the were, Birmingham toy trade. Yeah, exactly. They were very interested in this. So uh, that, that's certainly correct. And I certainly understand the de-skilling part of it as well. Um, but I guess what I was speaking to was the kind of uh, thesis that um, the imperial powers went into these areas in order to extract labor and unfinished uh, and unfinished goods, and, mm-hmm. and 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 full stop. That's what they were about. Uh, that that that's not really the story that you tell. No, I mean I think that that dimension I think becomes really much more important later in the nineteenth century yeah. in the Indian case. Yeah. Um, starting say sort of where my where near the end of where my book leaves off in the say 1830s 1840s mm-hmm. um, and you do have it say even in the late 18th century um, I mean these early Muslim manufacturers in Britain 
in the late 1780s uh, sit down with, to have meetings with the East India Company, which is still importing Muslims from India. And they, in their conversations, they, the Muslim manufacturers who still feel threatened by these Indian Muslims and the competition of those Muslims say to the East India Company, you know what you should do is import cotton from India, which we, which we can use, and then we can try to export Muslims from here to India, and everybody will, both, we'll be better off and Indians will be better off from this. Yeah. So you do have some of this thinking, but I don't, I think it's more in terms of particular commodities yeah. rather than a kind of big imperial vision of let's make this place a, a, an exporter of raw materials. I mean, that's a kind of, that's the structure that emerges but the process by which it emerges is more complicated, yeah. more uneven, and slower. Yeah, and I, and I don't want to say that imperialism doesn't play any role in your book. It absolutely does. It's just a more subtle view of it than the kind of uh, let's go in gunboats and rob them version. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So another thing that is not mentioned very much in the book is, a, um, and this you see a lot of this as well, cultural differences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you don't. You're not really um, excited about those as explanatory variables. No, I'm not, and I'm not saying that every place is the same. But I, for some of these kind of key economic um, topics, we can say I mean, kind of trade, um, kind of accumulating capital, um, banking. You can certainly in the way Indians organize some of these things in the in the seventeenth, eighteenth, nineteenth, and even twentieth and today centuries and today are radically different from the way Europeans may have organized them, um, drawing on relations of kinship and caste, and mm-hmm. and even sometimes beyond that, and so on. But it's these in terms of their effectiveness. Um, I, they were comparable, I would say. Yeah. So there isn't. I'm, I'm, there are cultural differences, but I'm not convinced that these cultural differences lead to radically different kinds of economic performance. Yeah. We yeah. can say. Yeah, I mean, I think that in many of these cases, the um, the the techniques which are necessary in order to create a market and then produce goods for that market and sell in that market can be very culturally variable. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but you know, when one place is producing uh, textiles for X and another place is producing textiles for X minus six, mm-hmm. the people who are producing it for X have a real problem. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's simply a universal and they're going to have mm-hmm. to find a way to produce it for X minus six yeah, or, or they're going to go out of business uh, in, yeah. in, in a free. Yeah. And th- this is sort of beyond culture. You really need to do this thing. And the, and the mechanisms which are available, I mean, one of the things you mentioned is ba- banking techniques. And they are very – they're variable throughout the world. I mean, you think in the, in the Islamic world that it's done actually quite differently. But it has yeah. the same effect. Yeah. I mean, capital goes where it's supposed to go. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think in terms of their kind of – we could say their allocative efficiency. Yeah. I'm not convinced that there are radical differences. Yeah, yeah. And I find that very interesting because, you know, the, where the rubber meets the road in, 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 in competition in, in things like commodities is, is – how cheaply they are produced and distributed. Yeah. That's really the end of the story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what else there is to say. I mean, we can see that in the world economy today. I mean, the fact of the matter is the Chinese are producing things a lot more cheaply than we can. Yeah. So we buy everything from them. <laughs> yeah. You know? And our problem is we have to find out other things. We have to find things that they want or we have to find uh, how to produce things more cheaply than they do. Yeah. That, those are our only two choices. <laughs> 
you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's aside, of, they may like American Idol or not. I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> so it is a kind of constant economic issue, we could say. Problem. Yeah, right. In terms of competitive economies, that's right. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a fascinating book, and I want to thank you very much for writing it. It's very, very interesting and well argued. And it's, as I say, that the thesis is telegraphic and I think can be picked up by, by anybody. Um, and so I want to thanks for, thank you for writing it. Uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, but I want to take these last few minutes to ask you our traditional final question on new books in uh, history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now? Well, I've, as a consequence of, of writing this book, I've become really interested in environmental history. Um, so my current project is in environmental history of 19th and possibly 20th century South India. So I'm really thinking broadly about the biosphere, um, water, forests, grasslands, and how and this biosphere has really radically changed in the last 150, 200 years. Mm-hmm. So I think what has been the impact on human well-being of uh, this dramatic reshaping of our of, of the South Indian environment is what I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to, I'll be going off to, off to South India in about oh, a month. Great. Well, that's good. Congratulations on that, and, and, and good luck with the work. Um, thank I, you. I, I want to thank everybody for listening in to this podcast. We've been talking with uh, Prasan Parthasarathy about his book, Why Europe Grew Rich and Asia Did Not, A Global Economic Divergence, 1600 to 1850. So thanks, everybody, for listening. But I especially want to thank Prasan for talking with us today. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you, Marcel. It's really been a pleasure. Okay, bye-bye.